Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Product Coalition podcast. This is the Melbourne series. Um, great to have you join me again today. Um, before we get going, I'll just give a quick shout out to the location sponsor where we're recording today's podcast from, which is Proud Mary in Collingwood in uh, Melbourne. Uh, Proud Mary is a speciality coffee roaster, cafe, coffee educator and retailer based in Melbourne, Australia, but also over in Portland, Oregon in the USA. Uh, I'm fortunate to be to be able to help out with Proud Mary and their story so far. So a big thanks to all of the Proud Mary coffee team here in Melbourne and over in Portland. If you want to find out more about Proud Mary Coffee uh, in Australia, visit proudmarycoffee.com.au. In the US, it's proudmarycoffee.com. Or get down to the cafe either in Portland uh, or here in Collingwood. That's the best way to learn what Proud Mary is all about uh, and experience the coffee. Uh, from the menu, my personal favourite would be the potato hash. That, that certainly has my recommendation. Uh, today, Rashika Kumar is joining me. Welcome, Rashika. Thank you. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's going to be an awesome topic. Today we're going to be talking about consequentialism and Zen in products. I love it. Mm. Um, do you mind kicking us off with a little bit about your story so far? Yeah, sure. So um, I work for McKinsey as a, as a consultant and consulting in the product space um, and I get to work with a bunch of awesome people trying to build really cool things um, and have made some great friendships along the way. Um, but yeah, that's me awesome. at the moment. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so we're going we're gonna to break the ice with some Melbourne, Melbourne questions. So what, what is your favourite tea or coffee joint in yep. Melbourne? So I would have to say my favourite coffee joint is one called Mr. Mister on Chapel Street, nice. not far from where I live. Awesome, mm. awesome. Um, in the CBD, where would you head for your favourite lunch? My favourite lunch spot <laughs> depends how hungry I am, but I would say generally the Grave Street is pretty much my go-to and it's, it's great in a way because it always surprises me. It's always got something new um, on the menu and, yeah, that's kind of where I like to – I pretend like as if I'm in Paris. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. nice, nice. <laughs> and for anyone visiting Melbourne, recommend checking out that, that area as well. Um, best tram route in Melbourne? Oh, number six, hands down. Number six? Oh, that's Glen a new Iris. It's, uh, it's the best. Yeah? Completely accessible, uh, low floors awesome. for, you know, people with kids and um, – uh, generally a pretty kind of um, uh, quieter vibe, I should say. So for those people, you know, who, who like to get into their podcasts and kind of, uh, you know, want to do work on the tram, excellent route. Not like yeah. the young ruffians on the 86? No, 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 don't, don't do the 86. Different calibre. <laughs> joking, joking. <laughs> um, yeah. What's your, your favourite meet-up or conference in Melbourne? Yeah, so... Um, I am not very active in the in the. I, I should say the structured kind of conference space. Um, I'm more like a, an unconference kind of gal. But having said that, um, you know my favorite kind of like conference in inverted commas is to just hang out with a bunch of people that um, have kind of similar interests, and I almost seek to hang out with people that are nothing like me. So awesome. hanging out in a conference with a bunch of other like product managers is almost like suicide for me. Um, <laughs> I would much rather have a, an hour-long conversation in a room with a doctor, a pharmacist, a, um, I don't know, a painter, a lawyer, 
you know, a minor. Like this has actually yep. happened, true story. Yep. And I would love that. Awesome. Yep. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. So today, consequentialism mm. and zen yeah. in product. You're giving me the hardest <laughs> word to repeatedly say, consequentialism. I Even I can't say it sometimes and it's, it's embarrassing. Um, but <laughs> so so mm. w- what's it about? What does consequentialism firstly mean? What's, th- what's that? Yeah, so um, I'll try to keep this as simple and brief as possible, but I think it's also important to delve a little bit into the world of ethics because um, it is quite a convoluted world. I mean, you know, you, you see the the kind of term banded about a lot these days where you know you hear people say oh is that the right thing to do or is that the ethical thing to do and I think it's 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 um tossed around and it's taken lightly but to say that something is ethical or not can mean a hundred different things and it depends on the the branch of ethics that you subscribe to and so to give you kind of um uh kind of a deep dive into into ethics is there's kind of four major streams when it comes to ethics uh, the first one being descriptive ethics, second one being applied ethics, the third one being meta-ethics, which actually interestingly deals with the origin of ethical concepts them- themselves and doesn't really uh, consider whether an action is good or bad. It just deals with the, the evolution and origin of ethics in, in themselves. And the final branch being normative ethics, and that's right. kind of the branch that um, I'm most interested in, and it's also the branch that consequentialism belongs to. So within normative ethics, uh, and mind you, within each one of these buckets that I uh, talked about, there's about half a dozen or so sub-branches of ethics that are nested within them. But let's talk about normative ethics. Um, So within normative ethics, you have um, kind of four main branches again. first one being uh, virtue ethics, which comes from Aristotle, and it talks about uh, the intrinsic character or virtues of the person doing the act. So it, it argues that, you know, if, if you are virtuous and if you're intrinsically good as a person, uh, in inverted commas, um, then your your acts are evaluated against that. Right. So it could even mean that if you were a good person that did a wrong, again, in inverted commas, thing, that thing may not be considered unethical because you're virtuous as a person. I know it sounds a bit confusing, but that's that's what it says. Um, there's obviously Immanuel Kant or the Kantian de- deontological ethic branch, which deals with the categorical imperative, and it it, it kind of deals um, a lot with universalism and reciprocity, which means it says you know if you uh, the way to judge something is to uh, apply the test of what if this was to happen with everyone on the planet? Would that be a good thing? Right. And reciprocity, uh, of course, the age-old kind of belief of do unto others as you want them to do unto you, and that's kind of a belief that a lot of religions in the world have taken, like mm-hmm. uh, Hinduism, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, all have kind of flavours of that um, imbibed in, in them. And then you have um, uh, consequentialism, right. uh, which which is uh, sits under kind of normative ethics and consequentialism essentially says that the morality of the action is contingent with the outcome of the action so uh, a morally right action uh, in in inverted commas again would produce a good outcome right and a morally wrong action would produce a bad outcome okay um so you know the core idea at the heart of consequentialism says that the end justifies the means right and so um, I, I, I find that quite interesting 
again, to just loop back into where we started with, which is if someone was to do a quick test and ask themselves, hey, is this the right thing to do? Well, I mean, depends, right? Yep. And it's such a, it's such a uh, kind of uh, confusing answer at times, but it, it truly does, as we've just seen based on the branch of ethics mm. um, you imbibe intrinsically. Can you talk about uh, your journey um, and how you've dealt with this? I mean, firstly, how did you discover this space? What attracted you into this? Yeah, um, I've always been, <laughs> I, I'm trying to think of the right word, but I've always been kind of very meta, right, right. From, from, from a very young age. So I remember as a three-year-old, I used to ask my, my father, like, why are we here? What's, um, what am I here to do? Like, what is my job? And, and you know, I even asked my grandmother and my mum and, you know, at first it quite, uh, it, it, it kind of, I think it kind of... Um, not upset them, but it threw them off a little bit. Mm. Like, hang on, here's a three-year-old asking me all these questions. But I think um, it's something that I have um, been able to take along with me, kind of that perspective of being able to take a balcony seat to myself almost from a very young age and mm. and use that to my advantage. So, um, you know, you'll, you'll go to a lot of trainings these days and, and courses and stuff where they teach you and how do you actually uh, take a balcony seat to yourself, you know, mindfulness and how, how do you become more self-aware. And I think that is something that comes very naturally to me and I've been able to do that. I'm lucky enough um, to be immersed in a family and, and the culture that surrounds me that really kind of enforce that and um, ultimately develop that perspective. So I think that's, that's uh, something that I just carry with me. It's great to hear you've had that support yeah. and encouragement yeah. and support. Um, I can imagine that, that, that it, it could be quite easy for parents to suppress that yes. type of thinking. Yeah, um, and, and the system in general as well, yeah. right? When you go to school and, and our educational systems are often not uh, designed in a way to deal with that. They are designed to deal with the average, right. uh, the absolute mean of what a, a student is supposed to be or, or sound like or, you know, um, so... Yes, I, I agree. I, I could say on that scale I was a few deviations away from the mean. It's not on yeah. the curriculum, I'm <laughs> no, sure. it's not, no. Uh, wi which agree. class do you introduce yeah. that into? Yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, fantastic. So, so from a, bringing it back to product management, can you, can you give us some examples and talk through some of this wi with product management yeah. uh, alongside it? Yeah, I think, I mean, why should, why should a product manager even really care about all this, right? Um, I think it's a it's an excellent question, Jay, and I think there's a few reasons why. Um, I think, firstly, you know, technology these days is advancing at an exponential speed, um, and we're lucky enough to be in this generation and this time to watch it almost unfold in front of our eyes. Like a lot of people, like our grandparents and our parents, you know, it took a, a good few decades for things to change. You know, for floppy disks to become whatever else and, and things like that. And, and I think one of the key factors fueling this, this pace of change is rapid advancements in the field of technology and product. Um, you know, the adoption of kind of machine learning and AI is, is commonplace these days. People are talking about quantum computing like it's, it's totally a thing. Um, you know, I read something the other day that said, you know, all data is biased. 
there is no such thing as, as objective data. And it's funny because people talk about qualitative and, and quantitative research and they're like, you know, qualitative research is great and, you know, it brings insights straight, like verbatim, straight from the user. But, you know, you should also have some objective data to back in. Yeah, but, but data is not objective. And, and all data is an opinion and it's biased. And it's interesting how the fields of AI and machine learning and, and um, fields that we're not traditionally thinking about this are now thinking about the field of ethics and what is right and what is wrong when it comes to data. And I think, um, you know, product is, uh, is a medium to create value. And I think we can save lives making products. We can cause addictive behaviour. We can cause climate change even. And I think with every new product or service that we design or create as product managers, we are creating a little piece of the world. And we need to be consciously aware of the ethical theories that we subscribe to intrinsically, either consciously or unconsciously, so that, um, you know, we can, we can make the right decisions. I mean, you think of the fields of, like, medicine, law, science, and these are traditionally the fields that think about ethics and there's a whole branch of like medical ethics and things like that but product management I think mm. uh, deserves and pro as product managers we need to think about these things very carefully and very early on when we're involved in, in making these products. Like to give you an example I was reading something the other day that talked about um, you know crash test dummies that they use in, in car safety rating um, tests use the, the body dimensions of an average adult male and, mm -hmm. and you can see how that could affect the test results and how uh, seemingly unsafe it could be for people of different races or genders or, you know, and how we know that socioeconomic backgrounds even affect physical makeup. And yep. so are we, you know, as product managers, we need to think a little bit more seriously about this. Brilliant. Uh, you're so right. And there's a little bit of coincidental timing here. We're recording this the day after all of the global yes. um, climate strikes that have happened around the world yesterday um and what what i saw on linkedin for the first time mm. is so many businesses talking about being part of that and supporting their staff yes. on strike yep. etc um with this topic in mind can, can you share your your th personal thoughts on what, what ha happened yesterday as a global movement look i think it was um I know we've all spoken about climate change at, at a social level, at, at a political level and, and, you know, as heads of state, as companies, whatever we can. But I think, um, to me, what happened yesterday was, uh, some would argue it's just another kind of um, marker on that journey, but I think it was quite significant in the, in the sense uh, that it brought together for the first time, multi-continent, multi-geography, multi-kind of across political dimensions, across race, across mm. socioeconomic backgrounds, it's, it, the way it was able to corral people and bring them together. And like you said, rightly so, with, with your workplace supporting and even giving you leave to go and attend these things, I think it was, um, yeah, it was very heartening to see, personally. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what the next iteration yes. from this is now. Yeah, yep. um, I'll be watching this space for sure. <laughs> mm. um, product managers love a model and a framework um, and love to turn to, to, to methods and plays. C can you talk to me about how 
a product manager can can not only navigate this space but um, consider it throughout the, the product life yep. cycle, uh, whether it's in a in a phase or on a day to day. Yep, yep. Uh, great question, and I think uh, there's two sides to the answer I am about to give. Uh, there's obviously tips and tricks that you can be mindful of, but a lot of this needs to be. Um, a discovery process intrinsically for for yourself as a person before you even um, try to uh, you know uh, utilize these tips and tricks in the in the next product that you're engaged in, and so I would say first and foremost be mindful of the branch of ethics that you subscribe to, and when I say that uh, being mindful, uh, people can do this in different ways, so. You know, ethical theories are never cut and dry. It's not like, oh, I'm a consequentialist or I'm an altruistic person or I'm a hedonist or whatever. You're you're always a mix of different theories. However, you know, with deep introspection and investigation, uh, there will be one theory that will generally loom large in your personal kind of makeup. And I would advise each product manager, um, to take the time to really pause, you know, make a cup of tea, um, do whatever works for you, but think about your behaviours, uh, the way you behave when in a team, the way you behave when no one's looking, the way you behave with your family, the way you behave with, um, yeah, in a social setting, it doesn't matter where, but, and sometimes it, it takes more than one session of just brooding in, in an afternoon, but it takes, uh, observing yourself over a period of time and think about uh, observe yourself in different situations at at university even and and think about who you are and your ethical makeup so that would be um, one of the first things the second thing I would say is ensure once you know the ethical theory you subscribe to try and make sure that the product that you're working on or supporting aligns with the branch of ethics that you subscribe to now this might sound hard, but it's not impossible. I can imagine um, that some of our listeners today might be thinking, well, what if you're a consequentialist working for a tobacco company? How's that going to work? Um, well, I can tell you it's going to be bloody hard. So um, I would say, you know, talk to the manager that you're working with, talk to the company, figure out how, you know, your um, intrinsic value system and ethics system can reconcile with the product that you're making um if you don't and if you ignore this and you just go along your merry way just saying you know oh it'll figure itself out actually it won't i have seen people where they have let it be and it's caused almost what i like to call an ethical implosion um where the dissonance that is created within themselves just starts getting larger and larger and larger to the point where it can have serious consequences on your health and you know personal relationships your career progression well-being and then people when those things are happening they often wonder they're like oh you know I'm just not feeling it I'm not aligned with my purpose at work and you know I don't know what it is I'm just not feeling fulfilled and well have you thought about what branch of ethics you subscribe to and is your product aligned to that um so pause, get that cup of tea and have a brood. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and thirdly, I should say, be aware of the design and technology choices that you have in your, in your toolkit as a product manager and as a team and as a company and right. just out there in the market. And be aware of, of the choices so that you can make sound judgment when, when involved with your product. So, you know, is this design going to cause addictive behaviour? Is, 
is is that something that I'm consciously or unconsciously aiming for with this product? You know, um, is this revenue model going to disadvantage people with low incomes? Is you know the algorithmic biases in in the technology that I'm using are they going to make the product so heavily biased that the recommendations that come out of that product will be biased too? And so these are just some of the questions that I think as product managers you should be thinking of. That's fascinating. Mm. It's really, really fascinating. Mm. Um, I suppose my own personal exploration in space, uh, you know, I've got my own ethics but wouldn't know where they sit or yeah. align to in terms of a categorization yeah. or a mix of different different um, categories that Absolutely. you mentioned there. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose the what, what, what you know, the old, the old saying of love the problem mm. um, is probably a simplification of, of what we're talking about. If you really want to love solving a tobacco problem, then um, that, that's going to align with, with one of those sets. Absolutely. Right. Yep. And, and wha- where, where would I get started today? Because I appreciate this is a, a, a huge, both broad and deep area we're talking about for people to, to start with that personal reflection is, you know, almost, I uh, want to oversimplify it, you know, if I think about like a, a Myers-Briggs calculator that I can go through, how, how do I learn more about me um, rather than like sitting there and thinking, but actually capturing what I'm thinking and turn it into a, a meaningful outcome. Yeah, um, I think that's a great question, and, and it's it's pertinent because you know often, just like your question indicates, people just don't know where to start. Mm. Like, do I literally make a cup of tea and just look outside <laughs> the window and watch the rain and start thinking, or what are the tactical steps I can take to start to unravel this this problem, if you, yeah. if you were to call it that. And I think um, this is one of those times where trying to simplify the issue at hand will almost dissolve the meaning. So there is no easy way to simplify introspection. You know what? There's different ways of doing it and there's different um, things that work for different people. For example, uh, the practice of Zen um, has a concept called silent illumination and that's something that that works for me brilliantly. I need to be alone I need to be alone with my thoughts. And I've been doing that, like I said, from a very young age. So that works for me. Um, for others, like my, my parents and my siblings are heavily into yoga. And um, I was just chatting before of how I spoke to my mum the other day. Um, mind you, my mum's over 65 and she called me really excited the other day and she said, hey, I can do a, ha- a headstand, like, unsupported. And she was just telling me about how liberating it is for her and how... Um, great it feels and so to each his own you know I know there's a lot of apps these days that take you through even the most simple exercise of how do you listen to yourself because it's it is a quite a daunting concept for for many who aren't used to it and so whether it's an app that you want to take the 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 aid off to you know just help you relax and be aware of your breathing even just to start with to get you into the zone or whether it's the practice of listening to music or dancing even or doing a headstand unsupported like my mum um whatever gets you into that mode I would say to do that deep introspective investigation because mind you it's not about brooding over how you feel it's about investigating and unraveling the innermost layers of your core and what you stand for this is the stuff that you Mm. don't tell anyone like you don't even tell your partner sometimes right? right There's always that 5% that no one knows other than you. And this is that stuff. So it's fairly deep. Yep. It's not easy. Um, nah. But I would, s- I would start by just saying, you know, chip away at it slowly. Use an app. Yep. Read some music. 
just get into the zone or whatever gets you in the mood and s- take it from there. And when it comes to life stages, I imagine kind of w- we all mm. get older and life stages come yeah. and go and things happen to us throughout throughout life. Is is centering in on what you've talked about something that can can help um, with not only politics at work, but an, an unfortunate event may happen in personal life. Uh, how does life stage come into this? That's a very good question. So, uh, you know, sometimes naturally people think, "Oh, this is something that I'll think about." You know, when I've had a couple of kids and you know, I've right. made enough money and you know, I'm in that mode. Well, actually, if you were to flip that over your head and think about uh, all of these things earlier on. My question to to all our listeners mm. today is how do you think that would impact the choices you make from there on? Do you think they'd be better or worse? And that's, I think, um, again, having said that, I don't want to take a very purist view with this and just using some of my personal examples as well. Um, y- you can have these kind of sparks at different life stages. I, I would not say... This is something that came to me early on, but I would not say that this is something that you need to wait for uh, a, a particular life stage. There's people when I, for example, I went to business school, there's people who were in their late 30s even that were at business school doing an MBA and that's when they had that spark, you know, and yeah. they they utilised the, the process of, of doing that degree and talking to some amazing professors at university to fuel that fire and that was their moment in their life and it was almost close to their 40s for some people it's when they become parents because it can be quite um a unique experience you know some people it's when they get a new job so i don't think it's cut and dry it's um just be open and let it hit you whenever it hits you let it hit you but don't ignore it is my message today awesome thank you so much Um, this has been uh, something completely different um from a podcast perspective and i think from a product management perspective so thank you for bringing a completely fresh conversation thanks i enjoyed it yeah yeah awesome thank you to everyone who's uh listened to this session um thanks rashika for for joining me today thank you to proud mary for hosting this podcast location as well here in collingwood melbourne um and i hope you're all able to tune into the next episode pretty soon thank you all